You've heard of animals chewing off a leg to escape a trap? There's an animal kind of trick. A human would remain in the trap, endure the pain, feigning death that he might kill the trapper, and remove a threat to his kind. Once men turned their thinking over to machines in hopes that this would set them free, but that only permitted other men with machines to enslave them. The Great Revolt took away a crutch. It forced human minds to develop. Schools were started to train human talents. Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind, a production of iHeartRadio. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick. And Robert, I know ever since that new Dune movie came out, you have been just itching to do another Science of Dune episode like the ones we did uh, a few years back. But obviously, that happened right in the middle of October when we had a bunch <laughs> of other stuff planned. So it seems like today is the day. The, the spillover from October is continuing yet again. Uh, yeah. And it, I mean, in a way, it's a spillover from both the October from before last. Uh, was that the original release date for the new uh, Dune adaptation? Oh, my God. You're right. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, th- we, like a lot of people, have been have been really hungry for this film to come out. Um uh, because I knew it would also just, in general, reignite uh, my fascination with the Dune universe um, and, uh, you know, introduce new people to the Dune universe. Um, and, of course, to correspond with that, we would need to go back in and do some new Dune episodes. Because, um, uh, like you said, we did a few or we did a couple years ago. Um, yeah. And now we're dipping back in. I think that was my first or second year on the show so it was a long time ago now yeah yeah it was, it was quite a while and and since then we've had people fairly frequently write in and say oh you should do some more of those we'd like to hear more of those so well here you go you asked for it you're gonna get it um, <laughs> i think uh i think I think we may be doing a couple of episodes here but i thought we'd start with the Bene Gesserit, um, with a with a particular focus on uh, the Gamjabar awareness test. So this is a, a pivotal early scene in the book, and it's also a memorable sequence from all three adaptations. Um, and, but he, it's it's one of those things where it occurs so early in the novel that even if you tried to read Dune and didn't finish it, you probably read this part because it it happens almost immediately. I, I read this scene several times before I actually made it all the way through the book. I, I don't remember if I mentioned this on the show before, but when I first tried to read the book, I think one of the big problems was I was reading a really bad paperback copy with extremely tiny print and small mm-hmm. margins. Have you come across this this mass printing? Oh, it's like a it's on microfilm and it has a little magnifier that comes out of the spine. Yes, it's like the that, Orange yeah. <laughs> Catholic Bible version. Yeah, it's yeah. not very fun to read, uh, and so I never actually completed the book until I got like a more readable physical copy. Well, that makes sense. That makes sense. But so I remember this scene quite well because I've been through it a number of times. Well, um, before we go any further, though, I want to drive home a few different points here. So, first of all, as much as possible, we're focusing on the first book and its adaptations, uh, the stuff that most people are going to be familiar with. So, we're, we're going to try not to, for the most part, go too deep and get into territory that, that uh, casual Dune enthusiasts will not understand. 
Also along those lines, we have to stress that we are not Dune experts. We are not lore masters um, as much as we, we like uh, the world here. I, um, I believe, let's see, you've only read the first novel, mm-hmm. uh, correct? And I've, it's been a while since I've read the others. I'm actually diving back in right now. So uh, basically what I'm saying is we may get something wrong. We may uh, misinterpret something in the books. And if that happens, well, you know, write in. We're happy to be corrected. Now, another thing I want to stress here is that I have not read Brian Herbert and Kevin J. Anderson's prequel and sequel books, so I can't speak to any lore choices made in those books. Uh, I'd love to hear from anyone who has read them as it relates to what we're discussing here. Um, And I'm all for folks enjoying these books, uh, but again, uh, they're not something I have read. I should also point out that I'm going to probably reference the 1984 Dune Encyclopedia a little bit. This is one of my most treasured uh, books. I, uh, I, I fondly remember reading a very ragged copy of it in the library when I was a kid. Um, and I'm not, I think I could check it out. It wasn't, te- they didn't classify it as a reference, so you could check this book out. And I spent a lot of time reading through, through that. And I somehow picked a copy up for like 20 bucks several years ago. Uh, it goes for crazy amounts on eBay now. Uh, but wait, which library was this? What, what library had a copy of the Dune Encyclopedia? It was just a small town Tennessee library. Yeah. Wow. They just had it. And, um, you know, I mean, Dune's popularity is, is, is widespread. So I guess it's not that, that strange. But yeah, it was very ragged and um, I, I was very fond of it. And then you had to, had to look up a copy of it years later. It's, it's long out of print. It's probably never going to be in print again. Um, and it's also not entirely canon, um, but I refer to it anyway because it's awesome. Uh, it was a it was an approved work at the time with an encouraging intro from Frank Herbert, um, but it was written by various other authors. But if you get a chance to look through it, um, you know, gra- grab it because it has recipes, it has uh, wonderful illustrations, it has all of this additional background info. It seems uh, this is just me looking in for the most part from the outside, but it seems like as a whole. With like with Dune lore, you basically have like three different tiers. There are the original Herbert novels, the Frank Herbert novels. There's uh, there's the lore of the uh, Dune Encyclopedia, and then there's the additional um, arm of it that is uh, you know created by uh, by his son Brian Herbert and his uh, novels, uh, you know, sequel and prequel novels. Oh no! So now that there's a big release of Dune by I guess. It's by a subsidiary of Warner Brothers, is that right? Are we going to get a situation like Star Wars, where now canon is being decided by the media corporation that owns the rights to to the Dune movie? Um, I don't think so, because I think it's kind of a... a, a I, th- I think there's a certain amount of control held by... Um, by Brian Herbert, if I'm not, oh, okay. if I'm not mistaken. Um, <laughs> I don't, so I don't know exactly how it's, how it's going to work out, but I don't think it's quite at the, like the Disney level where you have like a, a council that decides on, on matters. Uh, but I have, uh, I think the plan still is that we're going to get a Benny Gesserit uh, television series. So that's going to be interesting. Yeah. Uh, but what I want to know is, like, is the Dune Encyclopedia's recipe for spice melange omelets going to be, you know, <laughs> B canon or C canon or what's the deal? Oh yeah, yeah, that that the 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 pre Disney Lucas, uh, you know, multi tiered classification system. Uh, oh, yeah, that was pre Disney. Sorry, I I can't keep all. That I think straight. Disney came in and simplified matters to a certain extent. So I don't <laughs> think there are as many classifications, but. Um, so I don't know who knows what will happen with Dune. If Dune can, uh, that's assuming like Dune has like real staying power as a mainstream, uh, commodity. I hope it does. I hope that, um, that we see at least through Dune Messiah with this, this current slate of films. 
Oh, I guess I hadn't said, by the way, but I, I finally did see the new movie, and it's absolutely marvelous. Just amazing. Excellent. Yeah, we'll, we'll have to, to chat more, more about that. Um, so I, so th- let's go ahead and just talk a little bit about the background of the Bene Gesserit, like who are the Bene Gesserit and how they feature into the world of Dune. Um, you know, so for many of you, this is going to be just stuff you already know. Others, you might be a little foggy on some of the details. And I don't know, if, you, if you've only watched the film, maybe you picked up on most of this, but maybe not all of it. So Dune takes place uh, in the distant future. Humans have spread out from old Earth, and they've inhabited various worlds. Uh, while they encounter native organisms on these planets, including the mighty sandworms of Arrakis, they do not encounter other intelligent life forms. So subsequently, there are, uh, there are no intelligent life forms in the Dune universe that are not human or at least human-derived. Uh, by the later works, old Earth is said to be gone, and we just have this vast uh, uh, diaspora of human-colonized worlds. All right, so there's a big interplanetary empire it spans a big chunk of the galaxy, but it is not populated by all different types of intelligent aliens like, say, the Star Wars universe is. Right, and so that's something that definitely makes it stand apart from some of these other uh, um, you know, sci-fi franchises. Now, I suppose that's like the first big historical uh, point in the Dune universe is people left Earth and started colonizing other worlds. But the other big one, uh, and this one uh, you know, sets it apart from, from, from a number of sci-fi visions as well, is that you have this thing called the Butlerian Jihad, in which uh, uh, these spacefaring humans rebelled against their alliance on uh, so-called thinking machines, on computers and conscious AI, and, and also more subtly, uh, you know, it's implied uh, against a machine way of thinking. Yeah, and so this gives rise to one of the most unique things about the sci-fi setting of Dune. It is a spacefaring science fiction saga without computers in it, or I mean, mostly without computers. Instead, uh, computing tasks in the Dune universe are done by humans who specially train their brains to do the kinds of things computers would normally have to do. So you have figures like the Mentats, you know, sort of mm-hmm. human computers, or the, the the guild navigators who would do what a computer would do in most other sci-fi. Right, yeah. So they're all obeying these various edicts, like thou shalt not create a machine in the likeness of a human mind, or thou shalt not disfigure the soul. Uh, There's a great quote in the appendix to Dune, um, to to the novel, that says, Then came the Butlerian Jihad, two generations of chaos. The god of machine logic was overthrown among the masses, and a new concept raised. Man may not be replaced. And I know we've talked about this before, but I always thought that that was an interesting touch, the idea that uh, that it's not just like the war with the machines imagined in, say, the Terminator films, where mm-hmm. it's, well, the machines wanted to destroy us, so we fought back against them. There is more of a suggestion of kind of uh, subtle psychological revolt and uh, and more complexity to the conflict between humans and thinking machines that – a lot of the conflict seems to have been rooted in human resentment of what the thinking machines represented within human culture. Yeah, yeah. And I, I always liked how that idea seemed to have been given room to breathe, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not like, here, here's blow by blow what happened during the Butlerian Jihad. You're, you're yeah. sort of for, forced to, uh, to imagine what it might have consisted of. Yeah, it happened like 10,000 years ago and is now the basis of, uh, of major religions of the, of the empire in Dune. Now, the Butlerian Jihad is said to have lasted from the year 200 BG to the year 108 BG. And I know some of you are saying, well, what, what is BG? What does this mean? Uh, this means before guild. 
uh, which leads to the next point. Without, yeah, uh, without thinking machines, humans had to turn largely inward in order to manage this interstellar civilization. And without thinking ma- machines to augment human cognition, they had to enhance human cognition itself. And this ble- brings us to the, these different classes of, of humans and, and human factions. So we have the Spacing Guild. Uh, we're told it's a mental physical training school aimed at developing humans capable of handling space travel, particularly the dangerous navigation of hyperspace that was key to interstellar travel. And this is actually where, you know, if you know anything about Dune, you've probably heard the phrase, the spice must flow. You know that Mm -hmm. it has something to do with a brutal contest for a natural resource known as spice. And uh, uh, the role, and so I think a lot of people have, you know, critics have compared spice to oil, say, in the real world, saying that it's this all-important natural resource that makes basically everything in the economy possible. It, it makes mm-hmm. uh, it makes travel possible. It makes delivery of goods and services possible. And that is largely the case in Dune, but not by being an energy source that powers spaceships, but rather the spice is a drug that makes the navigation of space by human minds possible. That's right. Yeah, we're told that it, it basically allows members of the Space and Guild, the navigators in particular, to see possible futures, to see just a little bit into the future so that they can avoid all the various disasters that are going to occur during this uh, this sort of space travel. Yeah, so like you, you take the spice and then you can kind of hallucinate uh, fractal mathematics that allow you to, to, to see enough into the future or, or see possible futures well enough that you can navigate the, the harsh terrain of outer space or uh, folded space in particular. I'm not sure exactly what that means, but it, it's how they travel between the stars. Right. And then, uh, like we mentioned earlier, there are also the Mintats, the, the humans bred and trained to act in the place of computers and thinking machines, uh, the kind of futuristic savants capable of carrying out really advanced computations in their head and, and also, I guess, just carrying around a lot of information. Yeah, you, you might see them as a kind of uh, advisor or consigliere who has an internal computer within their brain. Right. I have to say, I like in the new film how they uh, uh, they had uh, Mintats uh, sort of rolling their eyes back in their head while computing things. Yeah. This is kind of a nice visual touch. Totally. I, can, I think that's one of the challenges of, of any of these adaptations of, of Dune is that there's a lot of written material that you either have to, you know, just commit to including a lot of narration and added dialogue about what they are and how they operate or you need to find and focus on ways to visually represent them. And, mm-hmm. uh, and, and I think all the films have, have succeeded to varying degrees in that. You know, like these, these characters look like that. They all look like this. They yeah. all have this hairstyle or lack of hairstyle. I mean, it, this is, I think, always going to be one of the real difficulties in adapting Dune. Like a lot, I mean, Dune is not unique in this regard. A lot of great science fiction and fantasy works, the real pleasure in them is in the world that they establish. It's like a really richly imagined and interesting alternate world. So a lot of the pleasure of the story comes in getting a lot of that rich detail about the world, but how do you, yeah, how do you cram that into a narrative? How do you put that on screen without just like explaining it? You could have a a narrator just telling the audience a bunch of stuff, but that can get really tedious. So Mm -hmm. how do you do it? And I, I think, again, the new movie, I think mostly navigates this really well. It finds good, succinct ways to communicate some of these rich, strange details of the situation. 
Yeah, or it seemed that way to me as well, though I'd love to hear from anyone out there who just went into this cult. Because yeah. <laughs> um, I've, I've only heard like one secondhand account of this where someone was, you know, they, they thought the Baron was the emperor sort of a thing. Like, uh, oh, yeah. So I'm wondering if that's like a common misconception based on not knowing what to expect or um, if that's you know, just something that this individual had. Well, I mean, that could be a totally fair criticism if you go in unfamiliar. I mean, the Dune world, I think this problem is going to be sort of inevitable. Like, the Mm -hmm. Dune world, it's just a lot. There's a lot of detail. It's very complicated. If you're going to tell the story in the kind of rich way that that makes it come alive, a lot of that detail is going to be in there, and so it can be easy to miss things. Yeah. All right, well, let's come back to the, the Bene Gesserit. So the Bene Gesserit are related to these other groups, but they, uh, we're told they predate both of them. Uh, they ex- uh, so they expanded with humanity across the stars, and the whole time they're kind of working in the shadows, functioning in many cases like a shadow government uh, and behind the guise of a semi-mystical organization. They're a mostly female organization who are particularly adept at manipulating religious culture. Uh, they they have, seem to have abilities uh, related to mind control and hypnosis. Uh, they have intense physical and mental conditioning that make them really potent operatives and combatants. So, you know, they can really hold their own. And we see them do that in the movie, of course. Um, at least in, uh, we see Jessica, uh, Paul's mom, uh, do it. She is, of course, a Bene Gesserit. They also make use of spice themselves to sort of enhance these talents. And we're also told they're aided by a kind of Jungian collective unconsciousness. One thing I think is interesting about the Bene Gesserit is they exist within the Dune universe kind of at the boundary of of hard science fiction and fantasy because there's Mm -hmm. a lot that they do that seems right on the border of is this magic – um, right. It, like Dune doesn't include overt magic. You know, you don't have people who are mages or casting spells or anything, but uh, the Bene Gesserit in particular can do a lot of things that uh, it is assumed that there is no magic involved and it, it, they are working by just some kind of obscure physical mechanism, but you might not understand what that mechanism is. Right. And they, they, they guard their secrets too. Uh, but this yeah. also leads to their critics saying, oh, well, they're a bunch of witches. That's yeah. witchcraft, what they're doing. Now, one of their big aims in the in the books, of course, is uh, especially the first book, is the selective breeding of the Kwisatz Haderach. Uh, uh, not a mere mintab, but a kind of super mintab. They want to make a, essentially a living supercomputer, uh, quote, one who can be many places at once. And uh, Herbert uh, explains, uh, quote, in simpler terms, what they sought was a human with mental powers permitting him to understand and use higher order dimensions. And uh, this fits into a very complicated power-seeking plot that they have about uh, essentially trying to create a galactic messiah. Right. So, um, I guess in short, the Bene Gesserit, I mean, you say all these things out loud. <laughs> in a quick summary, it's, it's, it's an awful lot. Um, yeah. You know, in terms of like, you're going to fit this faction into a movie along with all these other interesting factions and families and so forth, and not to mention the various technologies and organisms. Um, you know, all, all, all the more credit uh, to uh, any of these adaptations that, that have pulled that off. Uh, they have a lot of tricks up their sleeve, uh, many of which might seem like witchcraft to the casual observer. But we're going to come back to that, uh, that, that first big one that we see, the, the, the sort of uh, our, int- our real introduction to the Bene Gesserit is, of course, the Gamjabar awareness test. All right. This is the scene we were talking about right at the beginning of the novel that I've read multiple times. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I even read 
up to around this part to my son thinking like I picked up Dune after many years. And like, <laughs> maybe it's, maybe he'd like it. Uh, and we got made it about that far. And I was, and then I was reminded, Oh yeah, this is maybe a little, this is too dense for him uh, right now. You know, it'll save this one for later. But, uh, but yeah, it's a great scene and we're not gonna, we're not gonna spend, I guess, too much time explaining what happens, you know, beat by beat, but, but here are the basics. Quick note, by the way, um, we're probably going to end up saying Atreides instead of Atreides. We're probably going to, if we get into the, um, the, the, the Harkonnens, Harkonnens, we're going to mix those pronunciations up as well. Um, there's, of course, kind of a back and forth, I guess, about how you're supposed to say these things. The main character of Dune is Paul Atreides. I've always said Atreides. We, when we did an ad for this movie, they were like, no, you really need to say Atreides, which uh, you said is apparently how, how Frank Herbert said mm-hmm. it at some point, but uh, I don't know. I've always heard Atreides. That's how I've always said it. Yeah, uh, yeah. Her- Herbert said Atreides, and he said Harkonnen. Uh, but, you know, I- I'm of the mind, too, that ultimately these books live in our brains, and sometimes <laughs> there's a pronunciation there that doesn't match up with uh, uh, with reality, and uh, it's just how it goes. Sure. All right, so in this scene, we have Paul Atreides, the son of Duke Leto Atreides, and he's there with Lady Jessica, um, a Bene Gesserit sister installed in the Atreides household. Um, as part of the breeding program, Jessica was supposed to have a daughter who would then go on to birth the, uh, the Kwisatz Haderach, but then she defied them and had a son instead. Um, and then that son, of course, is Paul. And Paul has dreams, and sometimes those dreams come true. So the Bene Gesserit send Reverend Mother Gaius Helen Mohayam to test him. And Mohayam is not only a high-ranking Bene Gesserit, she is the imperial truth-sayer and probably one of the most dangerous humans in this entire fictional galaxy. So she's like a mega Bene Gesserit. She knows all the tricks, all the secret skills. Uh, you, you do not want to get on her bad side. Right, and Charlotte Rampling did a great job, by the way. I really oh, liked yeah. her performance. Yeah, she's really good. So what does she do? She conducts this Gamjabar awareness test on Paul. He's told to place his hand into a small, curious green box, and then she holds this, uh, like she has this little uh, needle thing called the Gamjabar. She holds it to his neck. Uh, and here's the, the situation. She lays it out. If you take your hand out of this box, I'm going to jab you in the neck with this pointy thing. Um, the, the Gamjabar here is essentially a poison needle that will just absolutely kill you dead. It contains uh, metacyanide, I think she says. Yes, yeah. metacyanide. So you might be prepared for cyanide, but not metacyanide. Um, the box, <laughs> the though, cyanide is, most, is so meta. <laughs> the box is far more subtle, though. So you stick your hand in this box, and it will begin to tingle with sensation. You know, like maybe, you know, just it, some, maybe eventually an itching begins. But eventually, and, and rather quickly, this is going to grow into an all-consuming feeling of pain. And generally speaking, I think people who stick their hand in the box, they just, they imagine that their hand is just on fire, just crumbling into ashes in there eventually. Right. Uh, it says, I think, specifically that when, when the pain increases in intensity, Paul believes that his hand is, is being charred away and just turned into a stump. Yeah. So, uh, you know, Paul, Paul has a lot of questions, and he's maybe a, a little bold in asking them at times in, in, during this, uh, this session. Uh, he asks what's in the box, and she's like, it's pain. Pain's in the box. And he's like, oh, okay. And, uh, but she keeps on going. Um, she says, you've heard of animals chewing off a leg to escape a trap? There's an animal kind of trick. A human would remain in the trap, endure the pain, feigning death that he might kill the trapper and remove a threat to his kind. Okay, so she's making a distinction here about uh, ways of responding to a threat, responding with just sort of with with panic or with with strategy. 
Right. And Mohayim explains that this, this is a test to see if Paul is a human or an animal. And when Paul asks, well, why are you testing for humans? She replies, to set you free. And in this, she goes back to the whole Butlerian Jihad a, a bit and says, quote, once men turned their thinking over to machines in hopes that this would set them free, but that only permitted other men with machines to enslave them. The Great Revolt took away a crutch. It forced human minds to develop. Schools were started to train human talents. And from here, she goes on to explain that the two main schools to emerge from this ancient shift were the Guild, focusing on mathematics, and the Bene Gesserit, focusing on politics. Now, that word kind of rings strange in the context, but I, th- I think it makes sense if you work it out. Yeah, like to, to reach this point where you're like, oh, they're, they're, they're witches, they're psychic, they have, they have crazy technology, they, they have martial arts, they're super into politics. That makes them sound like, oh, my good God, what topic are they going to insist on talking to me about? Um, right? Um, it, it, politics, I think, can sound a bit lame as the, uh, the superpower of the, the Bene Gesserit. Uh, but yeah, we have to, I think we have to realize they're talking about politics here in the grander scheming sense and not a shake hands and kiss babies sort of thing or, a, um, you know, the, the sort of politics that one sees on television every day. Yeah, well, I mean, there are multiple ways in which that could be misleading. I mean, one thing I think is worth noting is that when I hear the word politics, I automatically tend to assume a kind of uh, basically democratic electoral context uh, where even when the word has negative connotations, those negative connotations are against that background. So it might have to do with people lying or misrepresenting their priorities or engaging in, in petty corruption or putting their private interests above the public interests and so forth. All, all things that are bad, but on a different frequency than the political situation of the Dune universe, uh, because the political system of the Dune universe is hard to describe succinctly, but I think could best be seen as something like techno-feudalism or mm-hmm. – uh, Maybe sort of interplanetary fascist imperialism with with a special political deference to trade guilds, but whatever it is, it is certainly not electoral democracy. It's not a good political situation. So the the use of politics in the the Bene Gesserit sense, I think, should be understood as expertise in manipulating human institutions and seeking power and authority within a ruthless hierarchical empire. Yeah, I think that sums it up pretty well. So this test, this Gamjabar awareness test, we learn, is ultimately about giving the proctor of this test the chance to see how the individual reacts to intense stress, and in doing so, test them on their use of Bene Gesserit teachings, which Paul had been instructed in by his mother. Mild spoiler, Paul passes the test. He does not die, <laughs> like, uh, you know, five minutes into the film. Good job, Paul. Now, uh, at this point, I thought we might get into some um, explanations for what's actually going on in this test, or supposed to be going on in this test, how we might interpret it. Um, you know, uh, I guess in many respects, this, the test is pretty simple. You know, you got a needle with a drop of poison on it. You got this box. And Mohayim says that the secret of the box is something lots of folks would love to have, you know, because clearly there, there are plenty of uh, bad uh, characters in the, the universe who would li- like to cause pain. Uh, it's said to work via nerve inducers, creating a sensation of intense, you know, ultimately burning pain without actually causing physical damage. Now, I mentioned the Dune Encyclopedia, and I just want to point out that inter- interestingly enough, it does not really tap- tackle this topic at all. 
It's a book that goes all in on things like uh, how the molecular structure of melange might work or exactly how Ixian no rooms might function. But they pretty much left the Gamjabar awareness test alone, which uh, I, I was, I was kind of surprised at. I was like, there must be a huge entry to this uh, about this that I just never read. Oh, that's interesting. But, uh, of course, there was an article uh, about the Gamjabar that got into some interesting stuff in another book we've referenced. I, this one definitely came up in our previous episodes on uh, The Science of Dune, and the book is actually called The Science of Dune, mm-hmm. uh, published in 2008. It is edited by Kevin R. Grazier, and uh, there is a chapter on the Gamjabar called The Black Hole of Pain by an author named Carol Hart. This is still very much in print, by the way. So uh, if you're interested, you can definitely grab a copy. Oh, yeah. A lot of the essays in this book are pretty interesting. Mostly what they do is they they take one of the concepts explained in Dune and they talk about its situation within the Dune universe, but then try to relate it to real world science or sort of uh, situate its uh, its role in the narrative within the context of real world science. And so th- this essay by Carol Hart is all about the Gamjabar scene and uh, and and how it relates to some of the neuroscience of pain. So one of the things she says at the beginning of this, of this essay is that, of course, uh, the hand is, uh, quote, exquisitely sensitive to painful and non-painful stimuli. And I think w- we all know this from experience. Generally, you know, the hands are – there's just so much more uh, complexity of tactile feeling going on there than there is in many other parts of the body. I, I remember – when I was a kid and you would have to go to the doctor and get a finger pricked um, oh, yeah. in order to give a blood sample. I remember I used to think, why can't they just like prick you on the back or on the leg or something <laughs> to get the blood sample? Because it seems like it's on the fingertip. It hurts almost more than it would just about anywhere else. I don't know. Maybe some places on like, you know, the the face or a few other key points in the body might might be as distressing. But the fingertip just it seemed unnecessarily cruel to me. Yeah, I know exactly what you're talking about. I I try to regularly um, give blood at uh, local blood drives. And, um, you know, I I don't want to stare at the the needle in my arm uh, Mm. that's involved in the actual blood draw. But I think if I had to choose, like, what's my least favorite between the the, the needle in my arm and that that prick that they do just to test your blood initially, uh, it's always that, that prick. Uh, yeah. because it's just it's just like this sudden punching and there's this you know this sharp sense of pain it's very fleeting uh and it's not you know it's not bad in terms of you know as, as far as all things go but it is a stark reminder of just yeah how sensitive uh the fingers are yeah and i think there are multiple things going on here with this exquisite sensitivity in the hands i mean one thing is that the hands have to be very sensitive in order to be dexterous but there's also i believe a conceptual sensitivity in that you you realize that the hands in a way are more fragile than than other parts of the body you know that mm-hmm. uh, that you you need them to do all kinds of things so an injury to the finger will uh, will limit the things you can do more more so than an equivalent say prick or injury on like the thigh or the or the back or something would yeah now from here in Hart's essay she goes on to talk briefly about the the ways that pain pathways function within the body, what actually happens when a pain sensation is triggered, say, by an injury to the hand. Uh, And so the first thing she says is that most types of injuries to the hand will result in triggering more or less identical pain-sensing receptors in the the nervous system called nociceptors, you know, pain sensors. Uh, And the, the one exception she cites is certain kinds of, like, deep mechanical pressure or crushing pain. Mm hmm 
but the, generally, she says these nociceptors are going to detect injuries without much reference to discriminating its its type. So, for example, while different receptors in in the the tissues of the hand will be able to tell the difference between a range of warm and cool temperatures, mm-hmm. extremes of heat or cold that would trigger these pain receptors, they just register as undifferentiated pain and use the same neural pathways. Hmm. And so I thought that was kind of interesting, and she uses that to tie into some of the ambiguity of of what's going on with the box, because, of course, Paul cannot see his hand in the box. He doesn't know what's happening to it. He just knows something painful is happening. And so she, she uses this to explain that the intense burning sensation he experiences could be other things. It could That could include, like, extreme cold. Yeah, I, I always always liked this uh, as kind of a model of uh, an exploration of just pain in general. Because uh, as we've touched on before, there's always the sensation of pain, but then there's the mental world of thinking about the pain, worrying about the pain, interpreting the pain. And in this, you know, Paul's hand is literally in a in a uh, you know a green, but uh, you know, a black box where you can't actually see what's going on in there. Well, it's actually both. It's green on the outside, but then uh, he says on the inside, almost no light penetrates it. He says it's Mm -hmm. like a perfectly black interior that you can't see at all. Yeah. Uh, but to review, like the the sensations that the the narrative says Paul experiences while his hand is in the box, uh, it says first he feels cold, and then he feels slick metal, and this is presumably contact with the inside of the box. Uh, one thing, I, I don't know if you remember this, but it's kind of strange that the dimensions of the box are said to be very small. I think it's said to be 15 centimeters to to a side, which means that's like six inches. I mean, I mean, it, that, that's really small to get the hand in there. Yeah. But anyway, after this, it goes on to Paul saying that he, he feels prickling as if his hand were asleep. And uh, then this prickling turns into an itch. And then from an itch, it turns into burning. And then the burning just increases and increases in intensity until it is excruciating. And from here, uh, Carol Hart compares this to the sequence of sensations when pain is usually felt from an injury to the hand, such as burning or cutting. And there are actually two different processes that go on here. I I thought this was kind of interesting. So the first one is you get a very fast response that travels on uh, what she calls fast pain fibers. These are sometimes called type 3 nerve fibers or A-delta fibers. Mm Mm-hmm. And uh, and this response is is very quick. So this would be like uh, you know a tenth of a second, uh, and and it's also usually not experienced as like a, a miserable ongoing experience. It is a quick, sharp sensation, usually something that prompts you to immediately withdraw your hand from the source of the injury. And I, I think this is one of the interesting things about pain when compared to other types of sensory input, which is that in some cases, at least. Pain is almost synonymous with the behavioral reaction to it. So what what I mean by that is, uh, you know, uh, you, a lot of other types of sensory input, you need to process them and then, you know, judge your reaction based on the situation. But if you if you say touch a hot stove or something, your hand is withdrawn before you have even thought about it. Right. And it's like after your hand is off it, then you're like, oh, wow, what just happened? You know, you have to process it backwards, mm-hmm. uh, which is interesting. I mean, I, I can't really think of much other sensory information that works that way. Just just prompting absolutely immediate unthinking response that you can only reflect on backwards. Yeah, it is that that that, that sharp, intense message of, say, 
that's basically saying finger is in contact with something that is burning finger. Remove finger from said substance or object, you know? Uh, Yeah, immediate reaction. Uh, But then Hart goes on to explain that there's a secondary type of pain, actually, that that travels via a different neural pathway. So this would be what she calls the slow pain fibers. These are also known as type 4 or C fibers. Uh, And this refers to the pathway from the, the nerve endings in the tissue actually flowing all the way up the spinal cord and connecting to the brain. And these fibers, the slow pain fibers, they take longer to get running. They need, uh, she says, at least a full second to get the message to the brain. And then from here, these turn into a more building, persistent uh, sensation that is the pain we're usually thinking of as as the, the ongoing experience of pain when we've been injured. So this might be a kind of burning or aching pain that persists. It will usually grow gradually worse over time. It often spreads out from the original site of the injury. So you might have a cut on the hand, but then, you know, by the time it builds over, over the course of seconds or minutes, the, you know, the whole hand is aching, is there's this radiating uh, quality to it. And then also has something to do with the immune system's inflammation response, which is the sort of all purpose first responder to cellular trauma in the body. Inflammation is, of course, uh, also highly associated with pain and sensitivity to further stimuli causing even greater pain. And so this transition from the initial fast pain fibers to the slow pain fibers is is what Hart uh, refers to as the double pain response. Hmm. But there's another way in which the information we get via the C-fiber pathways, the slow pain pathways, how they differ from other kinds of sensory input. And, uh, and, the, and the point that Hart makes is that unlike many other kinds of sensory input – they really persist with repeated exposure. Uh, so, you know, we've talked on the show before about uh, different types of uh, neural desensitization to to inputs that, uh, you know, if you just repeatedly get the same sense information over and over again in, in an unchanging way, it very often fades into the background of consciousness. It somehow becomes invisible. So uh, this can be common with smells in your environment. So, you know, when you first come around the paper mill, you can really smell it. But over the course of some amount of time, probably a matter of minutes, you just kind of get used to it. And then you don't really notice that you smell it anymore. Yeah. Yeah. Or like cooking smells, another uh, example of this. You know, you say yeah. you cook a bunch of onions. You don't really notice uh, how this has affected the, the sense inside the house until you step outside for a little bit and come back. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, the same is true of sounds in your environment. So environmental sounds, you know, the rain coming down outside or the refrigerator humming. If it's just the same static sound input for a long time, you will pretty quickly become accustomed to it and not notice it anymore unless you, you know, stop to look for it or something. Mm -hmm. And of course, the same is true with uh, tactile sensations in the body, which would be the most analogous to pain sensations. Uh, Pressure, as long as it's not painful, will, will work in this case. So the pressure, think about the pressure of your clothes against your skin or your feet against the floor, or your butt against the chair, it all kind of disappears from your consciousness after a few moments, unless you either stop to think about it, or it happens to become uncomfortable. 
So all of these sensory stimuli tend to fade away rather quickly, but uh, C-fiber pain has a sticky quality in consciousness. It often just keeps hurting until something changes. Either the painful stimulus is removed, or the swelling goes down, or healing takes place. And in fact, not only does it persist, it actually does exactly the opposite in many cases. So you repeat the same sensory input in terms of most sounds or smells and so forth, and you will eventually become desensitized to them until they disappear. But Hart notes that pain sensations are subject to this opposite phenomenon that's sometimes known as pain wind-up or uh, temporal summation. And this is where the body becomes increasingly sensitive to unchanging painful stimulus. The same painful stimulus is not getting more intense in terms of what's happening to your body. It just The same thing keeps happening and it feels more and more painful upon repetition. Hmm. And Hart actually argues that increasing pain from repeated nerve stimulation sounds very similar to what is described in the scene, uh, except with the interesting feature that the pain stops completely in an instant when, when the Reverend Mother completes the test. She says, okay, Paul has passed, it's done, and then it says that Paul experienced the pain going away as if uh, you know somebody flipped a switch. And pa- pain in the body rarely does this. It rarely goes away that fast. Now, part of the whole point of this scene in the book is the the Reverend Mother's claim that essentially, you know, it, it's all in your head. She she mocks the idea of pain, and she says to Paul, a human can override any nerve in the body. And so she's saying, oh, you're afraid of pain. That just means you're weak, you know, you, that you, you mm-hmm. haven't figured out how to, how to overcome it like I can. And so uh, the, the question is, is it true that a, you know a human can override any nerve in the body? The idea that that pain is is all mental. Well, I I don't think that's entirely true. But with the grain of truth to it is that the experience of pain is subject to more inputs than simply the pure sensory stimulus applied to the body that is you know causing the injury or causing the pain in terms of the the environmental input uh, you know the knife cutting the skin or the the you know the the stick poking you or the hot iron against your hand or whatever it is uh and and some of these inputs are cognitive and so I, I think it's a good way to approach this to reimagine pain not as a sensory input in itself, but actually as an experience. Uh, and so here's the analogy I would use. It's much the same way that vision is not an input from the eyes, but an experience. So the environmental input for vision would be light. But if you've listened to this show for a while, you probably know that actually all kinds of other inputs contribute to our experience of vision, such that a person can see things with no input of light. So think about the the uh, uh, studies we've talked about with hallucinations that occur in total darkness. A person can have can be blindfolded or can be down in a cave or something where there's no light at all, and yet they can experience vision. They can see things, and sometimes. These things they see are not just, you know, uh, hallucinations unconnected from reality. Sometimes these hallucinatory visions can include real information based on other senses. The classic example uh, I think we've talked about on the show is, for example, 
uh, the body using proprioception, so its natural sense that allows it to know where its own limbs are, uh, to feed into the visual system, allowing you to, in the total absence of light, hallucinate the vision of your own hands in front of your face. Mm. Or then on the other end, you can think about the way that vision can receive inputs of light uh, in an at least partially working visual system and have no conscious experience of vision. So think about uh, cases such as blindsight, where a person is blind in terms of their conscious experience. They do not experience vision, but they can still do some things that show that the brain is getting visual inputs in some way and reacting based on them. The person is just not able to see it with the conscious part of their brain. And so I think pain is not equivalent to this in every respect, but it's close in some ways. Uh, So you can think about... I don't know, you know, the hot thing on your hand is that's the external stimulus applied to the body. That would be the environmental input, kind of like the light in vision. But then this input is conducted through pain fibers and brought to the brain and is one of a number of contributors to the subjective mental experience of pain, which itself consists of multiple independent components that can behave somewhat independently. So think, think about you know the different parts of pain that you can sometimes even, even sense yourself, like the, the physical sensation of pain versus the emotional component of pain. And they usually blend together into a, a unified experience, but there can be, you can have sort of moments of clarity where you feel them uh, in their own different ways. You get the texture of each, uh, if, if you know what I'm talking about, Rob. Yeah, yeah, I, I think so. I mean, uh, there's this whole, too, like you know, the emotional context of, of pain, like you, you slip and fall, you, uh, you know, you, you hurt your back. In in the moment, yeah, there's certainly the uh, the sensation, but then there's all there are these added levels of like, well, am, am I going to be able to walk after this? Um, yeah, it, or is this going to be a pain that sticks with me? Um, you know, how long is it going to take for me to get get over this? Mm-hmm. Um, as well as even considerations like, does this mean my evening plans are off? Uh, yeah. know, is this going to cost me, uh, you know, a lot of money? Um, are you it, embarrassed? Yeah. Do, are you embarrassed you because helpless? you fell? Yeah. yeah. So there's, yeah. there's so many things going on with, uh, with even, you know, I mean, I guess a fall under your back can be quite dramatic, but even just simple things like, um, you know, paper cut, uh, you can, you can have some of these thoughts like, oh my goodness, am I going to have to put, wear a bandaid now? If I have a bandaid on, that's going to affect my typing. How's that going to impact my job performance today? Right. So addressing this question of like, what are the other measurable inputs on the subjective total experience of pain in the brain? uh, Hart offers a really interesting example that's been backed up by some studies. And uh, the example she gives is your belief in the significance of the injury that is causing the pain. Uh, So she cites uh, behavioral studies showing that if you you take people and you subject them to the exact same sensory input, the example she gives is a hand immersed in water that is too hot to be comfortable. Uh, So not not hot enough to actually like burn your skin, at least for the time of exposure used in the experiment, but more hot than feels okay. Mm hmm. You take people, their hand in that uh, hot temperature of water, and apparently people report less emotional experience of pain if the only variable you alter is informing them that they will not be injured by the hot water. So if you say, Hmm. this will sting, but it's not going to burn your skin, it's not going to injure your hand. 
Apparently, in that condition, people report less emotional experience of pain. So according to this example, you can use verbal cues, you can use information that you recognize cognitively to regulate your own pain response. And so if you have more reason to worry that you may be injured by this thing that feels uncomfortable, then it actually hurts more. If you're assured that you won't be injured, it hurts less. And then on top of this, Hart identifies a couple of other inputs on the subjective experience of pain. Uh, one uh, that I thought was interesting was the idea of the locus of control. Um, so the locus of control is a term used in psychology to explain whether or not you feel like you are the agent in control of a situation. Do you have the ability to decide whether this pain stops or not? Uh, so the, one one good example would be, uh, say voluntarily grabbing a hot dish out of the oven with only a thin towel to protect your hand. That might be briefly painful, but then you, you know, put it down. I'm not recommending people do that by the way, but, uh, but uh, you know, so that would be a thing that you decided to do and you control when it stops versus having somebody say, press your hand against your will against something that's equivalently hot. Uh, Hart argues that the impression of helplessness would actually increase the experience of pain in the second scenario. Hmm. And it's, it is kind of interesting to apply that to, to Paul's situation, because on one hand, he can stop the pain the second he pulls his own hand out. Yeah. But he's being held uh, you know, hostage, essentially, here. You know, it's like there's, a, there's an inherent threat that you will die uh, if you if you pull that hand out. So, uh, yeah, it's interesting. Right. He's not being physically prevented from removing his hand, but he, I mean, he does have the, co- the knowledge. He has cognitive awareness that he, that the consequences will be dire if he does remove his hand. So he has to, uh, internally self-regulate. Uh, yeah, mm-hmm. th- that's a weird, I don't know where you would put the locus of control in that situation. Yeah. I guess that's, that's very much a Bene Gesserit trick, right? Obscuring the, the, uh, the locus of control. That's yeah. kind of their thing. Yeah, right. Is it with him or is it with her? It's kind of hard to say there. And then another input that Hart identifies is attention. So she says, if if something urgently demands your attention, the brain is usually going to find a way to at least partially ignore pain until the important business is taken care of. Uh, again, I think we all know this from experience that you, you can be really injured, but you're right in the middle of something incredibly important. And, and mm-hmm. then it's once that task is done that suddenly, ow, you realize how much it hurts. Yeah. yeah and you see plenty of examples of this, like in the sports world where you know, somebody you know, suffers an injury, uh, but then they they keep going, they press on. Um, and they can uh, in in that moment, but in some cases they end up doing more damage, uh, and, and then they feel the effects later. Right, and that might not even be deliberate. Like, the, yeah, you might not even be aware that it, you're actually hurt until. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. One more example that Hart cites as a, a piece of evidence for how pain, uh, to a large extent, is something that happens within the brain as opposed to something that happens actually at the site of injury is the idea of phantom limb pain. So, of course, mm. this is, you know, be, this would be pain that is felt in a missing limb after that limb has been lost or amputated. And the interesting thing here is that this is pain not only in the absence of actual ongoing tissue injury, but pain in the absence of actual tissue. Hart uh, writes, quote, These pains were originally thought to be the result of trauma to the severed nerves of the stump, but attempts to treat by a second nerve-sparing amputation frequently made them worse. The more extreme surgery of severing the sensory nerves at the spinal cord also proved to be ineffective in most cases. 
So Hart argues that whatever the source of pain in the body, the experience of pain, the subjective experience, largely happens in the brain. And this is why I think in some cases it's it's plausible to imagine how the experience of pain could be regulated up or down by various types of uh, you know other mental stimulation apart from just stuff happening to your hand inside the box. Right. Now another big thing she gets into in the uh, in this essay is what could actually be happening in the box like you know, if the pain, if the box is in a sense causing the pain uh, what are some plausible technologies? And I don't think she really lands on anything very solid here. She, I mean, and admittedly, she talks about how, like, uh, you know, we, we, we don't really know what could cause this kind of pain without any actual injury to tissues. She talks about some rumors of Pentagon interest in different types of uh, technologies known as active denial systems. These would be things that supposedly, a, you know, a police force or a military would use to disperse crowds by inflicting pain without tissue damage on them through supposed mechanisms like, you know, beams of microwaves or femtosecond lasers. Uh, but I think she rightly points out that in reality, these things would be not only painful, but if you were repeatedly subjected to them, they probably would actually cause injury. They would cause burns. Right. And I, and since this, this, uh, this has been published, I mean, I think we've seen more and more evidence for that based on um, uh, some of the the possible uses of this technology in the world. It's weird remembering some of the uh, the 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 press these things were getting back in the day. You know, it was like, oh, it's so nice that it doesn't cause injury. But somebody is, even if that were true, what they're saying is, I created a pain gun. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like that's a, a, a pain gun that leaves no mark. Like that's your your best possible scenario, based on some of those uh, those, uh, those 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 early articles and whatnot. But one idea that uh, Hart gets into toward the end of her essay, which I thought was very interesting, is the suggestion that ultimately the pain caused by the the Gamjabar test is not actually from the box. Like, what if the box doesn't do anything, but the pain is from the Reverend Mother herself? Uh, and mm -hmm. I think the book actually gives us reason to suspect this. Like, when Paul re-encounters the Reverend Mother again later in the book, he's like, I'm not going to fall for your tricks this time, suggesting that Paul believes that it was actually her causing the pain in his hand and not, and not the technology, whatever that was, inside the box. And here the idea would be, that uh, you know, along the lines of the the, the other stuff we learn about the Bene Gesserits, that they have these special powers of hypnosis. They specialize again in politics, which ultimately is you know the science of manipulating people and influencing them. Yeah, I mean, uh, to a certain extent, you can see, you can look around in the world around you, and it's like politics is often about manipulating your perception of pain points. Uh, so it makes sense that they're they're good at this. Yeah, yeah, even even in the mundane sense, but uh, but so the, the ultimately, I thought this was kind of interesting because there is some real research linking. So you know, one of the things it says that the Bene Gesserits do in this regard is they have hypnosis techniques, uh, and so there is actually some research in the real world showing that hypnosis, at least for. Uh, people who are susceptible to hypnosis and not everybody is but for people who are susceptible hypnosis can in in many cases be shown to be effective at uh at pain relief in in both chronic and acute conditions uh if you want to read more about this there was a there was a press release summarizing a bunch of existing research uh from the year 2004 put out by the American Psychological Association called Hypnosis for the Relief and Control of Pain 
Uh, now, I think there would be, uh, I think the effects we're talking about here uh, would be much more modest than what is imagined in the science fiction scenario, like, you know, making somebody think that their hand is literally on fire or burning down to a piece of ash. Um, I think this would be more along the lines of for people who are susceptible to hypnosis, it might have some mitigating effect on sensations of pain, but not like a, a totally mitigating effect. And of course, the evil corollary of that would be that if you can deaden people's sensitivity to pain through hypnosis, you could probably increase it as well, though that would be much less ethical to study, at least in contexts beyond, you know, the 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 relatively mild forms of pain people experience with, say, a hand plunged into a, a bucket of ice water. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I have to say that um, I think another uh, uh, bit of evidence that kind of supports the idea that the, the box is not generating the pain is that the box doesn't have a proper name. And, and Herbert was not shy about giving, uh, you know, n- throwing out names and terminology in, in the book. I mean, there's a whole dictionary in the back of the novel, uh, you know, letting you know what these various things are. Uh, the needle at, at Paul's neck has a name, but the box is just referred to uh, informally as the, as a box. Right. That's a good point. I, in fact, I'm t- I totally agree. If the box were the were the efficacious agent here, the box would have its own name. I feel like I know Herbert's brain well enough to know that. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, at this point, we realize it's time for us to take our hands out of the box. Uh, we're, we're out of time for this episode of Stuff to Blow Your Mind, but we're going to be back in the next episode with a continuation of this discussion. We're going to keep talking about the Bene Gesserits. Um, and we're going to talk about um, uh, getting into, back into that idea of politics and what that means. And who knows, we may discuss some other topics in the Dune universe as well. That cold open reading, by the way, is, of course, from Frank Herbert's Dune. And uh, Annie Reese, co-host of Stuff Mom Never Told You and Saver, uh, was nice enough to uh, record that for us. So thanks, Annie. In the meantime, if you'd like to check out other episodes of Stuff to Blow Your Mind, you can find them in the Stuff to Blow Your Mind podcast feed, which is found anywhere you get your podcast. Core episodes on Tuesdays and Thursdays, Listener Mail on Monday, Artifact on Wednesday, and on Fridays we do Weird House Cinema. That's our time to just set aside most of the serious matters and just discuss a strange film. Huge thanks, as always, to our excellent audio producer, Seth Nicholas Johnson. If you would like to get in touch with us with feedback on this episode or any other, to suggest a topic for the future, just to say hello, you can email us at contact at stufftoblowyourmind.com. Stuff to Blow Your Mind is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app. Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.